Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. We're drawing to a close in this mini-series about what distinguishes a local church from any other group of believers. The working definition that we've been using has been that a local church, it's a particular group of people who belong to Jesus and have committed to help each other grow spiritually as they submit to designated leaders, observe the two ordinances, and regularly gather together. Now, ordinances, that can sometimes make a Protestant a little bit uncomfortable. But basically, what it, what it refers to is traditions or, or ceremonies that the, that the Lord has given to the church to carry on. And these two specifically are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, foot washing, sometimes a case can be made for foot washing to also be a part, uh, part of what the church should still continue to do. But there's not as much evidence for that. It doesn't seem to be an ongoing practice for the church. Um, that's, kind of, that's a side issue there. But the two ordinances that have been recognized throughout church, his, uh, church history, especially Protestant church history, have been baptism and the Lord's Supper because these were uh, that we see in the Gospels and we see throughout the New Testament and through the, the testimony of the local church. And so we'll we'll dig into these uh, these two ordinances in this episode. Starting off with baptism, we won't spend as much time on this. Uh, I have covered baptism before in this uh, season. If you look back in season three, verse uh, season three, uh, episode twenty-one, uh, two views of baptism is more of a deep dive into what really is baptism, it, who is it for, what's the method? Do we do it? Do we do it by immersion? Uh, is it sprinkling? Is it for adult? Is it for believers? Is it for children of believers? All those different questions there. Uh, what I argue for there is more of a Baptist view. Uh, of baptism that is an outward picture for, of what someone has done when they've trusted faith in Christ. So it's not connected to a, to a specific age, but it is for someone who has personal faith in Christ. And it's by immersion based on the practice we see in the New Testament and also the meaning of the word. That's a summary of that episode, uh, season three, episode 21. If you want some more information about that, you can go check that out. But breaking this into a little Examining this again with a little bit more of to the local church or how the bapti- how baptism is an ordinance of the church, we'll spend a little bit more time today talking about that. Uh, our understanding of baptism goes all the way back to the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there, the primary thrust of our Great Commission is not to just make converts, but to make disciples. And then Jesus expounds upon that. What does it mean to make disciples? And he says, baptizing them and teaching them. And so baptism, in our understanding, should be the beginning of that process. Yes, there have been some instruction going on before that. But truly following Jesus as a disciple begins with baptism. Uh, well, it begins with personal faith in Christ, but then in terms of our acts of d- discipleship or following Christ from that point on, begins with baptism as we're personally identifying ourselves with Christ 
that we're saying, yes, his death and his resurrection have, have saved me. And I am been united with Christ. And I'm picturing that through the practice of baptism uh, with immersion, especially picturing that. Romans 6 talks about that uh, illustration, how baptism pictures our death with Christ and our resurrection with him, our, our union with Christ there. But coming back here to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says that discipleship involves this baptism, that's the beginning of it, but then an ongoing a walk with Christ with discipleship. And so I'll, I'll reference those points a little bit going on. But we also see in the testimony of the early church how baptism was an entrance into the life of the church, entrance into this new life in Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, uh, there are the people they have heard what Peter has says and they've responded what Peter has said about who Christ is and how they need to repent and turn to the Lord. And it says this, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So there, that, that describes the early church there in Jerusalem. And it talks about how they were baptized, and then they continued on with these things. Learning from the apostles, uh, breaking of bread, uh, Lord's Supper, fellowship, these different aspects of involvement in the church life. <clears throat> but baptism itself, we need to be clear, doesn't, doesn't save us. Um, that it's our personal faith in Christ that saves us. Baptism is an outward picture of that. Uh, Peter makes this clear in his first epistle. There he's talking about how, how God has preserved a few um, and talk uses the illustration about Noah and Noah being brought safely through the waters. And then he says in 1 Peter 3, 21-22, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Baptism, the word baptism in the New Testament can be used in two ways. Uh, one is the physical baptism. Uh, we believe by immersion is the best way to represent that. But there's also a spiritual baptism, a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that. And this baptism of our, our union with Christ, that Going through physical waters doesn't make us united with Christ. Faith does. When God grants us repentance, we turn to the Lord in faith. We, we choose to believe the gospel. Uh, we have been we're united with Christ throughout the rest of eternity. And that's a, a baptism of sorts. And that's the baptism that Paul is speaking about here. And he distinguishes that from water baptism because he says this baptism that saves us isn't physical. It's, it's not water that removes dirt from the flesh. It's not something that removes dirt from the body. Rather, this baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It, it's faith in Christ. And he points that out by pointing to where Christ is at now. He's saying that Christ has saved us. The preceding verses talk about how Christ bore our sins. He died for us. And he's saying he's, he's alive. He's at the Father's right hand. And, and all authority has been subjected to him. So our faith in terms of what saves us is in what Christ has already done and the fact that Christ is now at the Father's right hand, that he is reigning as king, his sacrifice was sufficient. It's not in any act that we do. It's through faith that appeals to God for good conscience. 
So all that to say, water baptism doesn't save us. It's a picture of that salvation, of that spiritual reality that has gone on. And as we said, this that baptism is also a picture of our entrance into the life of the church. Uh, Jonathan Lehman uh, talks a lot about this in his book with Colin Hansen, Rediscover Church. And he, he talks about how this is, as I said, baptism is an entrance into the life of the church. So a lot of people point to uh, examples in the New Testament, as I said, where so, someone was baptized and they started being involved in the life of the church. There's also some theological aspects to this tying in with um, uh, regenerate church membership, that if the church is made up of those who believe in Christ, then baptism is that uh, beginning of that, where a person testifies, I, I've chosen to believe in Christ, and the church responds, Yes, we acknowledge that. We affirm your affirm your profession. So there's a lot of theological concepts that can go along with that as baptism being understood as that entrance or that beginning of true life or true involvement uh, with the church. Now, as I said, that's a theological construction. That's not entirely played out uh, in the New Testament. The emphasis throughout the New Testament is that baptism is our is a testimony of our personal faith in Christ. It's not always tied to, to involvement in a local church. In some instances, uh, we don't see any connection with the local church uh, given in the book of Acts, with, tying with baptism. For example, in Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 36 through 39, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. There's no church assembled there. It's on this road uh, going down to Ethiopia. Um, there's no church there. We don't think... As far as we know, there wasn't any church at that time at, in Ethiopia. The, the gospel hadn't spread that far. So that's not a connection with the local church, either in what that man entered into or what the um, or, or who was witness to that baptism. A similar thing can be said with Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, verses 47 through 48. And yet Peter makes it clear that we that no one should refuse water for baptism for these people. They've been saved by the Lord. They received the Holy Spirit. They should be baptized in recognition of that fact that, yes, they have personal faith in Christ. And then one more clear example would be in Acts chapter 16. There, Paul and Silas, um, they've come to Philippi. Uh, they've preached the gospel. Lydia has believed. There's already seems to have been a fellowship of believers uh, already there in Philippi by the time we come to Paul and Silas being imprisoned. Whether that was fully constituted or established as a church isn't clear, but there was a fellowship of believers. The passage makes that clear. And then we know the story about how Paul and Silas were imprisoned. God set them free. The jailer says, "Sirs, what must I do to be what must I do to be saved?" And they respond. And then in Acts sixteen thirty-two through thirty-three, it says this. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour and wa and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. It's the middle of the night, and he's still baptized. The fellowship of believers was not said to have assembled. Uh, this was seen to have been just been a private thing between Paul and Silas. Maybe some of the other prisoners may have observed this. We don't know, but at least Paul and Silas and the jailer and his household. 
it wasn't directly connected to a local church. Now we can assume that the, the man then would join with that fellowship of believers afterwards, but baptism itself wasn't done in a church service. It wasn't done in the assembly of a church. So in, in that sense, baptism, physical baptism, is more of a picture of our personal faith in Christ. And if it's an entrance into the church, it's an entrance into the no, baptism does not make us enter into the universal church, but it, it pictures that that when we've been saved, we were automatically uh, baptized into the universal church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about that. We, we were baptized into one body by the Spirit. So that, that's what baptism is. Now, as I said, there can be that theological uh, talk, and uh, especially when we consider the aspect of discipleship, how baptism uh, should be, uh, baptism can be tied to local church membership, that uh, entrance or that beginning of true fellowship or, or true involvement or belonging to the local church. There can be a lot of prudential reasons with that because when someone believes in the gospel and they're baptized, and they're baptized, our work isn't over. We are called to make disciples of them, to teach them, to help train them, and the local church is necessary for that. So we can make a theological argument for the fact that when someone's baptized, they should join a local church, and we can argue that, but Scripture doesn't demand that, per se. Baptism, just in and of itself, is a picture of one's personal faith in Christ. That's what baptism is. It doesn't save them. It uh, is our personal faith in Christ that, that saves us, and baptism is just that outward picture of it. So I said there's more details about that in that previous episode. Uh, explore some more aspects of that, but... Baptism, baptism is get commanded for the church to practice for for people who come to faith in Christ. And as I said, we can make that theological argument that uh, it would be wise for them to also join the church at that point as well. The other ordinance that is given for the church in an ongoing way is the, Lord, the Lord's Supper. This is something that the, the church is to regularly practice and... Um, it's commanded in this all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also in First Corinthians, First Corinthians eleven. And in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter twenty two, verses nineteen and twenty, it says uh, says this about how Jesus instituted that. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it sounds pretty straightforward. It's something we practice. But there can be some uh, controversy or debate about what does it actually represent? Is Christ physically present in the elements is he actually there in the bread and the wine is it just a time of remembrance because um, he says that the bread is his body so it sounds like he's talking literal isn't it well when we consider the greater context of what he was saying there and compare cross references uh, i believe that it's talking metaphorical christ is not physically present in the bread he's not pre physically physically present in the wine it's more of a time of remembrance and we'll get into some more reasons for that here shortly. But talking about this metaphorical use of eating his body, um, 
this is not the only place where Jesus used that picture. In John chapter 6, he uses this several different several times as he's talking to the people. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 51, he says this, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There he says that we need to eat his flesh. And this is also talked about a few verses later in verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So was Jesus saying that for us to truly be saved, we have to eat the Lord's Supper and that he's physically present in those elements? Well, he wasn't because we were just looked at a few verses. When we look at what Jesus was saying in that whole sermon, we see how he was using eating his flesh, drinking his blood metaphorically. Uh, consider what he says of, back in verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There he says uh, that those who believe in him will have eternal life, and he'll raise them up on the last day. That's the same results, he said, for eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He says that back in uh, verse 50, later on in verse 54, he says that those who eat his blood, uh, eat his flesh and drink his blood will have eternal life, and he'll raise them up on the last day. So it's the same result, so that helps us understand that he's talking about the same thing. So in other words, eating his flesh and drinking his blood is not a literal eating and drinking. Rather, it's a symbolic it's talking about a deep, committed, personal faith in Christ, that, that communion or fellowship with Him. Uh, communion there, not necessarily talking about the Lord's Supper, but our personal relationship with Christ that begins with faith. Uh, this is also clear in verses 47 and 48. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Where he's pointing out that he's using this picture of bread of life symbolically, that it's faith. In him that saves us. We have to believe in him. That's what saves us, not eating a piece of bread. There, He's using bread metaphorically because just as we need bread and, and food to be able to, to live and to survive, so we need Christ for spiritual life. And so that he's using eating his flesh, drinking his blood metaphorically there in John 6. So it also helps us bring an understanding to what is being said uh, when it comes to the Lord's Supper. That though that it's a little bit of a different metaphorical, metaphorical use, it, he's still speaking symbolically. <clears throat> that he's not physically present in the bread or the wine. Rather, it's a time of remembrance. And that remembrance has to do with three aspects. Our fellowship with Christ, our proclamation of the gospel, and also our unity. Each of those are involved with remembrance. And uh, Luke gospel and then also first corinthians 11 make it very clear that this is a time of remembrance christ isn't physically present we're doing this in remembrance of him and this is this or we're going to talk a little bit here about our fellowship with christ that this remembrance of him isn't in the abstract it's not just a mental acknowledgement oh yeah he, he died for us no it's a deep time it's a time of considering christ had to shed his blood for me his body was broken on that cross. He poured out his blood for my sins. That was the only way I could be forgiven. The only way I could be reconciled to the Father. Uh, 
I deserve to be there, yet he took that for me. And as we consider that, as we reflect upon Christ and we had that communion with him, we are able to have that fellowship with him uh, from the heart that we remember that we remember the cost of what he did in our place. So that fellowship with the Lord is a matter of the heart as we pray, as we reflect upon him personally, internally in our hearts, not in just the act of eating a piece of bread. Christ isn't there in the bread. Rather, it's a picture of what he did, and it's a, a time for us to remember the, the price that he gave on our, on our behalf. Taking the Lord's Supper is also a time of proclamation. That uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, right after giving the commands about how we ought to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Paul said this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's saying that we proclaim the gospel. He's saying that we proclaim the Lord's death, that his death upon the cross for our sins. But it's also included in there in the resurrection. Because if Christ is going to come again, then he ha he had to rise again. He wouldn't still be he couldn't still be dead if he's coming back again. So we have the death, the resurrection, and also his return. The promise that he is going to come back. He's going to come back and take the church to be with him forever. He's also going to come back to judge the world. So there, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we partake of the bread and the wine as a picture of the gospel, we're proclaiming that. And we're proclaiming that personally and corporately. That as we each individually choose to partake, we're identifying ourselves with Christ. That, yes, I belong to him. It was his death and resurrection that saved me. I belong to him forever. Uh, this is who I am. I'm in Christ. I am proclaiming that. And also corporately, as we partake as a local congregation in the Lord's Supper, we are saying we're his church. He has saved us. Our identity as the people of God is rooted in this gospel. So there's both a personal and a corporate aspect to this proclamation of Christ's death until he comes. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, there's a time of personal fellowship with the Lord as we remember what he did for us. There's a time of public proclamation, both personally and corporately. And that leads into the third aspect of partaking of communion, of partaking of the Lord's Supper, um, is unity is unity within the local church. In 1 Corinthians 11, the reason Paul brings up the Lord's Supper there is because there was an abuse of that that was going on in the church. And it's very insightful to see what that abuse was and how strongly Paul talked about it. The abuse wasn't that they uh, used the wrong type of bread or that they didn't have a certain type of, of wine or maybe they had the wrong people serving it out. It wasn't any of those type of things that we think about in the Lord's Supper today in our, in our Western context. Rather, uh, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was part of a meal. And the issue was they were not maintaining unity as they did that. And Paul says because they didn't, they were, they, they were doing the right act seemingly in terms of they ate the bread, they drank the wine. But they because there wasn't unity, they weren't celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and 21. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. 
there wasn't unity that was being expressed in the local church as they partake of the Lord's Supper. Remembering that the Lord's Supper there in the early church was part of a meal. You had some who didn't have enough because of their financial situation. They, they went hungry. They didn't have enough to be able to bring to, for a meal that would fully satisfy them. And then you had others who just went and uh, took excess. <laughs> or maybe they went first if there was, if there was a sharing of the, the food. They just went and took excess, just took whatever they wanted and didn't leave enough for the whole church. There could be different ways about how they, uh, one took things to excess and one was hungry. But the point was how they partook of that meal, how they partook of the Lord's Supper was not part of unity. And because of that, they undermined the very message that they were proclaiming. That when we remember the, the death and resurrection of Christ, we remember that he saved us and that we belong to him. But when we belong to him, we also belong to his people. That when Christ saved us, he, he didn't just bring us to a random collection of people who are saved and we each just focus on our own personal relationship with him. We're part of a family now. And so belonging to the Lord Jesus also means that we belong to one another. And the, the gospel is, is what saves us. It's also what unites us. And we are testifying when we partake of the Lord's Supper correctly, we are testifying of that unity. That despite all our differences of background, our differences of practice, our different convictions, all those things within the confines and the bounds of Scripture, there's some variation. Despite all those differences, we are one through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have been sealed by Him. That the gospel is what makes us one. But yet, when we partake of the Lord's Supper in a way that does not uh, show that unity, when we're each taking our own and there's where there's divisions and stuff that are happening, we're undermining that very message that we're seeking to proclaim. That, yes, we may personally, individually be partaking of it, but we're not partaking of the Lord's Supper corporately in a way that honors Christ that is consistent with the gospel. And so Paul tells them that the remedy for their situation was not that they take the Lord's Supper at home. It wasn't saying each of you just do that yourself so you don't present the wrong message. He says, no, in, in verse 33, he says that when they come together, wait for one another. He says, do this in such a way that is going to maintain that unity as a corporate body. That the Lord's Supper wasn't something to be done just individually in the confines of each person's own home. It was to be done there together as part of the local church in such a way that would reflect that unity that we've been called to. And that's an aspect of the Lord's Supper that may not be talked a whole lot about uh, today, at least in the West, is that though we don't partake of a meal with it, though we just have a lot of times wafers or small pieces of bread and some uh, juice, there is an aspect of unity that we have to understand that we uh, sometimes forget. There in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, uh, verses uh, 16 and 17, Paul is there dealing with the issue of idolatry. So it's a different type of context, but he brings up the Lord's Supper there um, as a picture of that. Uh, he says this, he says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless uh, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of for we all partake of the one bread. 
though we may not have a single loaf or a single cup that we use today, our understanding of the Lord's of the Lord's Supper should reflect that that picture. That Paul is saying that the how we partake of the Lord's Supper should reflect the way that even though we're many, we are one body in Christ. He's our head. We've all been united to Him personally, but we also are part of the body. And so how we approach the Lord's Supper should be mindful of that aspect of unity. That we're proclaiming the gospel, yes, that Christ saves us, His death, His resurrection is coming again, but we're also part of His body. And it's the gospel that unites us, not our common practice, not our, not anything else that we do, but it's Excuse me, it's the gospel that unites us. And so that's also involved in the Lord's Supper. It's a time of, of remembrance. It's, Christ isn't physically present in the elements. It's a time of remembrance. As we fellowship with the Lord, and remember his, his death, his resurrection is coming again. The proclamation of that gospel, both personally and corporately, and also a reminder and a picture of that unity that the gospel brings. So those are the two ordinances that the church is given that we are called to uh, observe in an ongoing way there's some variation about how that is carried out like with the lord's supper there how often do you do it scripture doesn't lay down a rule that needs to be weekly monthly yearly it just says as often as you do it so it is to be a regular practice of the church but congregations have the freedom under the guidance of the spirit for for their group to of how often they're going to do that there's also could be variation in who leads that is it part of a meal is it just with the, the pieces of bread and, and juice at the end of a, of a service? Is it the deacons who lead? Is it the elders? Is it the men of the church? There's variation in there as we observe the Lord's Supper. Or with baptism, is it part of a special baptismal service? Is it part of the regular service? When in the service is it done? Who can baptize? Lots of variations there. But the point is not so much about the specifics that we may vary on, but the picture of the gospel that each of these uh, portray. Uh, baptism by immersion most clearly represents the gospel that saves us. The water doesn't. It's our personal faith in Christ. And so immersion into the water and then being raised back up pictures the gospel in our union with Christ. And the Lord's Supper does that as well and as a way to remember his death, resurrection, and coming again. So we remember the gospel and point that ourselves and to others to that as we observe these commands of Christ. And that's really the point, is that we may vary in the specifics of how we carry these out, but these were given to the church by Christ. We are to faithfully observe them as a picture of the gospel. Yeah, so those are the two ordinances, and we're coming to the close of this mini-series here about uh, what uh, is distinctive about a local church, and we'll um, carry that on next week with talking about the practice of regularly gathering together. But until then, read the word and take your stand. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing. To find out more information about Here I Stand Ministries, check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, copyright 1971-1995 by the Lachman Foundation, used by permission, all rights reserved.